All right, we have been working through the New Testament letter of 1 Corinthians. We have now arrived at chapter 10. I've got to give you a quick overview of what we've been through so far. Ultimately, 1 Corinthians is addressing um, new life, new life in Christ. Uh, the, the people living there in Corinth were introduced to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and many of them responded. So when they responded to the gospel, it means that they agreed with God that they had sinned personally and individually. They agreed with God that Jesus was the only way by which this sin can be forgiven, can be taken care of. They individually agreed with God that they needed his forgiveness. And, and, and the conversion would carry certain truths. They're, they're, they're coming into a born-again experience meant that they agreed with God they put their faith in Jesus Christ, and they asked God to teach them how to live this new life. And so ultimately, they were living at a horizontal level, earthly plane, absorbing and understanding some of the wisdom and truth that is horizontal of this plane. But then they came into a relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ. So now the wisdom of heaven is being poured into these physical, temporal vessels. And they're learning how to, to live and love at a higher level. And that's what's happening. So in chapter 10, there's these reminders and there's this digging in because you realize in Christ you are free. But you are called to use your free freedom, your liberty, to serve one another in love. Chapter 8, we were seeing how you were, you were to consider one another. And there's some issues that we dug into. You can catch the previous teaching. Chapter 9, we looked at how it took endurance and personal discipline to learn how to love one another for the sake of the gospel. You have the freedom, freedom to do various things, but if your freedom causes somebody to fall on their face, stumble, so to speak, and you exercise that freedom and trip someone up, you need to think about why you're doing what you're doing. Your freedom is actually to serve one another in love. So now we're going to see, as we begin chapter 10, he's going to draw from the Old Testament as it letting them know a practical, real-world application for these truths, how to put it into practice. So what I'd like to do, read 1 through 14 of, of the verses of chapter 10, and then come back and grab it a piece at a time. Join me if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and they drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Verse 5. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our example to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the age have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. 
But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. All right, let's move back up and walk our way through this. You can be sure that when the scripture says, I do not want you to be unaware, I do not want you to be ignorant, they were ignorant. <laughs> That's why it said, listen, I, I want to clear this up. I want to make sure. I don't want you to be unaware. See, what was happening is the information that they needed was there, but they didn't necessarily apply it. Can you relate? You ever had something you knew what to do, but you didn't do what you needed to do, and, and then you didn't like the consequences of your own dumb, you know, kind of doing your thing? It, it's like... We know what to do, but we don't always put it into practice. The Corinthians were not putting into practice the truth, the knowledge, the word that they had received. They were growing, but, but they were also kind of stalling. And, and I find this very fascinating. I want you to pick, you know, really hold on to this, this truth, this reality. Rather than a harsh rebuke, God gives them a refresher course on the Old Testament. Instead of saying, listen, you punk, I've told you so many times, I'm gonna, you're, you're, you're due. See, some of us think that that's how God, is, how God is, correct? He's just a little wound up, a little keyed up. He's leaning really close to the lightning button. You've got two little zaps, and one more, you're going to be an ash pile. You better get it together. We're just afraid that at some point he's just going to, and I'm done. Like in fear, instead of realizing, no, 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 no. Do you realize he's going to walk them through? Listen, here's some real-world stuff you can relate to. These are not lofty principles in the sense of beyond everyday practice. These are applicable. These are practices that where we could say rubber meets the road. This is truth that should be put into to everyday life. And so check it out where he says, I don't want you to be ignorant. All our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the seas, referring to Jewish history. As I mentioned, we could think of it as the Old Testament. They were baptized, it says, into Moses. Well, there wasn't a, a baptism service that we may think. What does that mean? They were baptized into Moses. The word coming from the Greek and being brought into English is an interesting word because the word baptismo, baptism, you know, it wasn't translated into English. Did you, do you realize that? It was transliterated. It, it took the basic core word in Greek and then brought it over and made an English word. Because it had the application of it, and, and, the, and there really wasn't anything that really conveyed that truth out of in, in English, or you know, in the King James. So why, why do I mention that? Well, because it means they were identified. They were identified with, which is really the core, the physical baptism that we may do is an illustration of a change of heart on the inside. So here they were identified with or under Moses' leadership. They had seen, now think about this, this is why this is a really important thing for you and me, because we need to know how to put into practice these principles that God is bringing into our understanding, into our framework as, as human beings. And so they had seen God's power. They had seen his protection. They had seen his provision. It, it, it speaks to us when it says, you know, they were, um, they, they were under the cloud and passed through the sea. You know, we sometimes pray, God, just help me understand. Show me. Give me a sign. 
you know what? It's a sign physically isn't going to pull it off. These people walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. That's an aha moment, right? You're like, aha. You know, you, I, I, I think there was maybe some humidity. I'm, I'm assuming you're walking through with that, man, this is amazing. But a little bit of trepidation, a little concern, because there's this wall of water. And, and, you know, Charles and Heston's out in front of you leading the way, and you're kind of walking through this whole thing. And it's like, you're like, you got, I mean, I get goosebumps trying to imagine, what would that have been like? The power of God present in your life, protecting you from an enemy behind you. And you go through and you get to the other side, you get a little hurried towards the end, and then you look back and like, oh no, here comes the bad guys. Well, guess what happens? Boop. Walls, the wall is water is done. It now consumes the enemy. And you're standing on the other side going, that was awesome. You would know God existed. You had the power. You've seen his protection. You could sense his presence. That a cloud by day and fire by night to lead them through their, in, their, in the wilderness wanderings. God holding back the Red Sea, you know, which is a, I won't get into it, it's a type of baptism where they pass through the water. They experienced manna in the wilderness. I'm hungry. All right, you know, frosted flakes and quail, here it comes. You got it right here. And so they have it, and they're like, I want something different. We'll get into that in the latter part of it. You see what happened? They've seen it in their, in their I just, oh, I don't know how to convey it. It's like, I'm still trying to process it. We're told here that they also drank from the spiritual rock where, this, where Moses, you know, struck the rock and the water came forth. We're, we're told that this is, this, is a, this was something to understand that Jesus was always with them. The incarnate presence of the angel of the Lord, the incarnate presence of God. And it says, you've seen it. They drank that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Man, what an amazing thing. See, that is the context. That's why chapter 10 is bringing to real world what's been presented in the previous chapters. How do you put it into practice? Because others have learned. But you notice what those who went through and seen a miracle, that experienced the provision, that knew his presence, most of them God was not well pleased that's probably one of the biggest understatements of Scripture. Because technically, we've only seen two of it out of a couple million make the cut, Joshua and Caleb. So most of them is really an understatement. Most of them, God was not well, they didn't, they didn't enter into what God had for them. Verse 5, but with most of them, God was not well pleased. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Some portions of Scripture, I found that there's some words that I just kind of hold on to, and I noticed one here that I've, I've turned into an acronym, and I've, I've tracked it through the New Testament especially, and this acronym holds true. It's the word but, B-U-T. And you turn it into an acronym, better understand this. They've seen this, and they've seen this, and they've seen this, but you better understand this. Most of them, God was not well pleased. They did not enter into what God had for them. And so we see this being brought forth in the New Testament for, your, for our benefit. What was the problem? They did not please God. God was not well pleased. We're told in Hebrews chapter 11, a very important 
portion in regards to this topic. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So notice this. God is saying, without faith, it's impossible to please him. There's got to be a practical, real-life expression of what you believe. It's called faith. Where you and I, we learn to exercise a gift. You don't manifest faith. It's not like, I think I can, I think I can, and you little engine, you can get over the hill. This is not it. it faith is, according to Romans I believe chapter 12, where, where everyone's given a measure of faith. It's literally a gift from God imparted into the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. And you're given faith in the season, in the moment. You're given faith to do daily stuff. And you're given faith in critical situations where you realize, man, I, I don't know how I'm going to handle this. And so realize, you know, God, we must believe that he is God. And as we approach him, that he is a rewarder. He is a responder, so to speak, of those who put him first, who seek his face. Pleasing God requires putting faith into practice. I want to I go a little further with this because it's really, I believe, key and critical in our, in our contemporary times. So let's, if you would, consider Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is, is teaching. It's early on in what we know as the gospel record. He's given this sermon. He, he stands up above uh, geographically so he can speak to more people on a mountain. So it's called a sermon on the mount. And he begins to share and teach and presents a really radical, a really disruptive sermon, seriously. Because he was going against religion. Religion is where you do certain things, you compare yourself to other people, and through man's effort, man compliments himself and says he's closer to God. It's contrary to a life of faith. What's the difference? You have religion, religious efforts, and you have a relationship with the living God. A relationship with the living God leads you, instructs you, and teaches you that he's came to you and how to walk with him. Religion teaches you you can do it on your own. Just follow what everybody else does, do a little better than most of them, and you'll get a gold star. Well, it, Jesus just turns out all over. You treat your enemies like this, and the, and the kingdom of heaven is like this, and, and, and the way you engage, and, and all these outward expressions... Don't, aren't, aren't any good for you if you don't have faith. Consider Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. He's towards the end of this message. He's got their attention, to say the least, on the parables and stuff he said, and notice how he concludes. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, he goes on to tell us about building your house on the sure foundation and not on the sand. But you see what he said there. Those who would come to him, maybe even some of us who, who have this perception, I know before I was, a, was born again, I, I felt that if you did right, then did good things worked out for you. And so prior to being born again, I would compare, and I'd, I'd say I would think of, say, a group of people like this, and I'd know some of you are really messed up. 
and I'm only partially messed up. So I know I'm not in as deep situation as you are. So I'm obvious, I'm not as good as some of you. But some of you, you know, I know I'm better than you. Because I'm just measuring off me. And, and I'm like, okay. Well, Jesus is saying, we're well, measuring that way? See, some who would say they're Christian will hear him say on the day of judgment, depart from you, me, you worker of iniquity. Oh, no, 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 Jesus, it's me. You, you don't check the roster. It's me. Do you, I help that old lady across the street. I, I, give, I donated to that thing I benefited from. And I did these other things. You know, I did these. It's me. And he says, I don't even know you. As one artist said, a musician years ago, the most terrifying words man can hear. God saying to somebody who thinks they're right with him, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. Doesn't that shock your soul a little bit? Does it? I hope it, it kind of creates a little disturbance in the cranium. Where you're like, wait a minute, what, what, what are you saying? Well, what I'm saying is you have to have a relationship with the living God. Jesus is teaching without faith, it's impossible to please God, to know me. And so you can do the outward and not be right on the inward. Let me, let's bring up a quote. Let me, let me share with you some thought, something, kind of a summary of what I've been working through this week. In the Old Testament, even in the church, there are two groups. Those that have true faith in God and those who simply have an outward relationship to the people of the covenant. In the Old Testament, there's those that experienced the Red Sea reality. They went through it, but they never put their faith in the living God. They just hung around faithful people. And it's much like in the church. Some hang around a spouse or a neighbor or a friend or different friends that are nice and they're Christian, but they don't really put their faith in the living God. They're just, it's a social setting, so to speak. Moving over to chapter 10, 1 Corinthians, verse 6. Building from this realization that we have to have a relationship with God. Jesus said it really simple. You must be born again. You mean I need, I, I could be? Is it one of the options on the religious order? No, no, no. You must be born again. Well, yeah, but I went to, work, to, to church with my wife a lot. My grandma took me when I was a kid. I love going with my children. I want my children to know truth. So I went to church a lot. No, no, you must be born again putting faith in him, having a new life, a spiritual life, born of the Spirit, so that we can then not just learn from people, but really understand what God's doing. Because he says, these things became our examples. Those situations and the things we see from the Old Testament, they were actually, one thing from them is to benefit you and me. Isn't that amazing? I want you to learn. These things became our example, and notice this, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things. We're going to look at five specific points where we can learn from, from what other people did. You know, we can learn what to do. We can learn what not to do. Um, five points where they failed and where we will fail also unless we choose to walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh, according to Galatians 5. So you're given these examples. I'm told about these things so I can learn from them. Verses 6 through 10 contains five warnings. Let me touch on those. Five warnings, beginning in verse 6. Do not lust after evil things as they also lusted. That's why that's, we're being told. Listen, here's one of the things that they did. 
Aren't you glad you would never have to worry about that? Here's an interesting thing. Lust is a word that's most often associated to sexuality, correct? Lust is an inappropriate, disproportionate appetite for something that results in a consuming thought, a constant want. So you could lust after anything, right? It's almost noon. Some of you have an eight since eight o'clock. You're already thinking about that buffet down the street. Or maybe you're, you know, sometimes we can live to eat as opposed to eat to live. Is it possible that you could lust after food? I think it's possible. So you got, okay, well, what about other things? You can have a disproportionate, an imbalanced hunger, desire, appetite for something, and you'll be lusting after it. You know, they, they lusted, notice, after evil things. Well, what's evil things? Well, that's obviously, you know, red suit, horns on the head, funky tail, pitchfork in your hand, that's, that's evil. Well, maybe. My point is, evil is that which is contrary to God. Those things which are contrary to God. So it's very important to have that awareness. Because see, most of the people that were walking in the wilderness didn't see themselves as lusting after evil things. But they did terrible things. But they thought they were okay. Do not lust after. Verse, 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 is an interesting quote where it tells us, you know, the, speaks of the lust of the flesh... Uh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And you and I, we can find ourselves leaning to subconsciously, not even always consciously tilting to where we set our heart upon and we long for or we covet something. We have some visitors here today, so I'll pick on them. Is it possible that somebody could lust after a Harley over a Honda? <laughs> potentially, just potentially. Yeah. <laughs> I, you notice I didn't go the other way around, but no, we won't go there. So, it, 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 is it possible we can set our heart on something, fishing, maybe a new fishing boat? You know, right now we're coming, we're, we're just weeks away from the month of idolatry. Oh, did I say hunting season? Did, oh, did I go there? I got some stink eye from some of the guys. Woo! Because guess what? We can start longing for it. Now, get, get, make sure you keep this in context. It's not having those things that's the problem. It's when those things have you. When they become your primary thing, when they become your identity, when they become the thing you wake up in the morning wanting, then guess what? We're starting to lust after these things that are of this world. And it can be education, it can be vocation, it can be promotion or, or position, it can be acquisition of assets, it can be all these different things. He's saying, listen, don't lust after the things of this life. Let them have their place, don't let them take you over. He goes on to say in verse 7, and do not become idolaters, as were some of them. You know, he references a situation we're told about in Exodus 32 where the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So, how would that apply to you and I? Is there a way that that would have some application? Do not become idolaters. Well, you know, idolatry, once again, is putting something before you that takes the place of the God that should be there. 
In other words, longing for something else more than a relationship with God. So you have, I have, we're living in a time which is very fascinating. Because we have these things that are, that are very interesting. See, these are, these are cool devices, correct? Okay, let's just go back in time. For some of you have been around long enough to know what I'm talking about. So you used to get up or maybe schedule time, and you would sit down in front of this wall-mounted device. Well, they weren't wall-mounted initially. They were, they were console. They were, they were, they were this, this big hunk of good wood, and, and then this CRT, sketchy little screen in the middle. And you would gather, and when, when uh, you know, wonderful world of Disney, uh, wide world of sports, uh, wild kingdom, am I kidding with anybody? These were shows that come on, and you scheduled your time around that show. And nothing wrong with that. Until that's all you live for. Until that became the thing. Now, what's that got to do with today? Well, now it requires much, much more self-control to utilize the source of information in such a way that you don't become obsessed with it. Because I think these things are awesome. I can, I can check. I can get that. I can get information. I can just, man, this is great. I can review. I can see pictures of my grandkids. And I can just, like, it's amazing. But you know what? There's times I have to say no. Because it can become, and functionally, it can take the place of God. It's weird, isn't it, that that, that would be the case. And so let me just say what, what's happening here and, and tie this together a little bit. In verse 7, the apostle, you know, Paul is referring to, God has inspired him to, to bring this truth forward. He's referring to the time when, the, the, when there was this, the, the, they made this golden calf for the Israelites. They set it up in the wilderness when Moses was up on the mountain. See, Moses, their leader, had brought them out of Egypt, and he was no longer visible. He'd went up on the mountain, and in their opinion, he took too long to get back. So, like, we don't know what happened to him. So they decided, hey, Aaron, could you just make us something tangible, visible, that we could worship? Which was crazy that Aaron said, okay. I still haven't figured that part out. But nonetheless, their leader, Moses, was not visible before them. And so they wanted something that their eyes could see. I believe that happened in the first generation of the church, too, who they physically, visibly seen the risen Lord. But then they had to work out, after he ascended into heaven, how to walk in the Spirit, how to live this out when your eyes are not upon him. And it's easy to start putting your eyes on something else. They wanted gods that would go before them, tangible gods that they could see and worship. That's in Exodus 32. I've got to mention something. So when you come to church, when you get your device out and you pick your sermon to hear and you're, you're literally choosing to be built up in your walk with God and knowing the word of God, when you come in here, you've got to remember this ain't a theater. This ain't entertainment. This is where you are able to study the word of God and you always have homework. I didn't hear a single Amen. <laughs> no preaching, brother. Yeah, all right. We get it. Yeah, homework. Woo! You always have homework, but we very rarely realize that. I'm going to say, this was out of Exodus 32. I'm going to give you an assignment. I'll, I'll give it right now. Read Psalm 78. It's God dealing with rebellious people. When you come and when you settle into the word, whether it's physical, whether it's in front of your, your TV, for those of you who are catching online, or whether you put yourself somewhere where you can take this device and you study the word, it's not just a quick glance and then on to the busyness of life. 
It's you're you're hearing from the living God, not just a f- person in front of you. That person, don't be different people, but you hear from the living God, and He stirs up something—a portion, a passage, a reference verse, the main verse, whatever it may be. And your responsibility, your homework—I know this is not accepted by some, but get over it. Your homework is to go home and do it. Dig in. What did he mean in Exodus 32? What is that talking about in Deuteronomy 6? How does this work out here in Romans 12? And and you settle in and you start thinking, I have been affected, influenced, uh, instructed by the living God. I think I should check it out. I mean, if your friend tells you to do something and that friend's kind of an idiot... Like, I mean, like he doesn't know anything about fishing. He says, oh, you should fish over here. You're like, okay, I will. Loser. You won't do it. But if somebody who knows what they're talking about gives you critical information concerning your life, you're going to go, where do I get those again? Can I get those online? Is that not true? It's the living God speaking to us and encouraging us and saying, hey, listen, check this out. So anyway, you remember you have homework when you leave here, right? I can't hunt you down. Well, I shouldn't hunt you down. And see if you did your homework. God will encourage you. Let's move on. I got to roll. Verse 8. Do not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. Sexual immorality. You know, this... I'm thinking you how to say this more accurately. but So this generation, I think of like my generation... And even those maybe of my children's generation and, and those before us were kind of messed up, but not as messed up as the generation to come. We understood, my, my parents, my grandparents understood what a man and a woman was. They understood that there was a biological, scientific truth called a man and a woman. And if a woman didn't like being a woman, get over it. You don't get to change it. They, they, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not picking on any group. I'm, this is historical fact. And, and now there's this presentation by this order of idios, uh, this the select order of stupid that says you can be whatever you want to be. No, you can't. You can't. I'm, I, 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 but we have a generation. Can you? What is? What is the? What are the first graders that are growing up? being told all this. It's horribly mean to tell someone their body can be mutilated because of how they feel. We haven't even touched. I don't even have time for that. But that's a generation that's coming up. This, my generation, we could understand sexual immorality a little easier. This generation is being told from, from now, in elementary ages, they're being perverted and misguided and, 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 and manipulated by the sexual deviant people in our world. That's what's happening. How's it going to be for them? You know sexual immorality. If you don't, I'd like to go over some basics with you, not today, but I can. You know it. And it basically just says, you know, don't commit sexual immorality. Don't give in to urges and opportunities. Learn to identify what compels you, what captures your attention, and where you're prone to go off course. I got to go up riding here a couple weeks ago, and I got to ride a trail I hadn't been on. It's called Crosscut Trail. It takes you into the Trinities, brings you back out at Featherville. Fun little trail. It's a little technical, not bad. I'm on a little motorcycle. I haven't rode for a while. But I know this from my experience riding. 
pay attention to what you're looking at. When you look other places, you go other places. Trail can go left, but if you're looking right, you're going right. And you got to learn to know. Like, I'd come across an area, and it'd be a little more clear, not as much timber. And I'm like, ooh, is there any deer down there? Maybe some elk? And guess where I'm going? I don't want to find them that way. i got to know, what, where, do, where am I tilted? Where's my tendency? Where do you go off course? You know it. You know when you're prone to look up something on the, on the screen. You know when you're tilted. To, you just Learn to be honest with yourself. Be honest with yourself, and you'll learn to be honest with God. Lie to yourself, and you'll never admit God's right. Is that not true? Just learn to be honest with yourself. You don't even have to discuss it with people. You say, oh, man, every time that happens, I tend to do this. Okay, stop it. Well, I'm waiting for the Holy Spirit to stir in me and prevent me from doing that. No, that's not how it works. Hey, stupid, stop doing stupid. Because when you do stupid, stupid things happen, and it hurts. I've seen a bumper sticker. Maybe you can relate to it. Stupid hurts. It does. And I, I'm not, I, the Bible, in chapter, read chapter 12, verse 1, I think it is of Proverbs. When you won't read, even one who won't receive instruction is, you all say it together with me, stupid. Because it's like, you're not learning. I want the Holy Spirit to move in such a way that I don't have to do anything inconvenient. And he says, that's so funny, Danny. No, you, this is how we do it. You know this produces this, stop doing it. But God, just stop doing it. I'll give you the power. I'm with you. I never leave you nor forsake you. Just stop doing it. Read Psalm 78, 19. Moving on to verse 10. It's the uh, fifth one, if you, if you believe. Yeah, it is our fifth point. It's a warning. Don't be a complainer, a murmurer. Do not complain. See, complaining is interesting because those of us who have done it in the past and got really proficient at it, we fail to notice one thing. We're always right. You don't complain about you, rarely. If you do, it's because you're setting it up to complain about someone else too. But generally speaking, murmuring, finger-pointing, complaining, what, what is that ultimately doing? It's exalting you. It's lifting me up. It's my opinion that matters because obviously I can complain because I know more than those other people or that other situation or, or those people. And so we find ourselves complaining. It's, it's, it's natural in a sense. It's what the old nature does pick apart and complain, and, and guess what? Read your Bible. Do your own survey. How often does it work out good for complainers, murmurers, and finger pointers? I, I can tell you right now, I'm just going to present to you some probable statistics on your survey when you write the record in the Bible of how often complainers, how it worked out well for them. Zero. Zero. God says, do not be a complainer. You know, anyone can point out a problem. We're called to recognize situations, but to choose to be a servant to fix the problem. Who's our model? What's our example? Jesus. Sin wasn't his problem. I know that's a little street level, but it's like, seriously, it wasn't his problem. He didn't sin. But he chose to serve those who were busy blaming him for what they did. He chose to serve those who were busy blaming him for, for what they did. He came to his own, the Bible says, and his own did not receive him. They crucified him. Behold what manner of love is this. Not only that we could be called children of God, but that he would endure the brutality and the hostility of the cross 
to rescue you and me. He is a servant to solve a problem. Those five points you can see from verses 6 to 10, wrapping it all up because my time is up and I committed to loving our children's ministry leaders and getting the kids free. So, verse 11, remember it's for our instruction. We are at the end of the age. That's really what that text. Some people say, well, are we in the end times? Yes. We're actually 2,000 years into them. We're at the end of the end days. We're in the last of the last days. And these things were given so that we would walk in truth, that our life would reflect the forgiveness we've received, that we would live the new life, that we would live out the love we've been given. And it should be evident. No temptation is overtaking you except it's common to man. You go through some tough stuff, but, but suck it up, buttercup. You're not the first one to go through it. Others have went through it. Not in any way demean the pain and the suffering and the heartache, but notice he, he will always provide a way that you can bear it, a way, of, a way out. It doesn't mean escape temptation. He will lead you through a difficult path many times to go through it. You will not be removed from temptation. That's called heaven. That's something to come. In this day, you will... Uh, in this world, you will face tribulation, but be of good cheer, Jesus said. What do you say? I have overcome the world. So we know we're going to go through it. He will, he will lead us. And so understand that, wrapping it up. God is faithful there in verse 13. God is faithful. Therefore, my beloved, I, my beloved flee idolatry. Recognize your weaknesses and lean on God for strength and deliverance. I'm going to have the worship team come up and uh, I'd like to pray with you and close out. I, I love closing our time with a, maybe a, a passage I see or a portion that maybe God makes known that's really applicable. It helps us wrap it up. And I believe that's Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. So we'll let the worship team come up here. Why don't you stand with me? We'll look at this last verse and pray and then close our time and worship together. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Let's read this. I'll read it out in consideration of what we've heard and seen, in consideration of your desire as a person, as a follower of Jesus Christ. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let's pray, God, as we stand before you, as we are here seeking your face. My heart's stirred, Lord, for anyone who's here or listening online or catching this message that they don't have that confidence that comes from you. They don't have that certainty of salvation that you offer. If you're that person, I would just say, do you know that if you died today, you'd be in the presence of God? A forgiven soul. Are you born again? If you cannot answer yes, I want to ask you, what are you waiting for? This world has nothing to offer you. It's not getting better. You know you have sin. God has made it known to you, but he also has made known to you the forgiveness he offers you. And I would ask you just to pray this from the heart just from the very depth of your soul, agree with God.
it would sound something like this. God, I, I, I don't understand much of this stuff. It, this church stuff is kind of confusing sometimes, but I, I do know my soul. I know the depth of my heart, and I, I know I've done wrong. I know I have issues that are unresolved in my life. I know I've hurt people. I know I've done wrong against you. And so I, I would just ask that you'd forgive me. And I know forgiveness comes, I'm, I'm learning that it, that it comes from you, Jesus. That you came as a man. You died for my sins. You rose from the dead, conquering death and hell. And you offer me the new life that comes with your victory. So I'd ask, forgive me, God. Give me this new life you speak of and help me. Help me to live this new life. A life that's not like the previous life. A life that puts you first. A life that you lead me into. Put my faith in you, Jesus. Lead me from here. My confidence is in you. And God, may that continue to be our cry. Every one of us. May we never become so spiritual that we lose sight of you. Oh, Jesus, our confidence is in you, our Lord and our God. Even as we sing this song, we rejoice in who you are and what you've done. Till we see you face to face, keep us close to you, Jesus. In your sweet name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Amen.